As a child, I couldn't stand asparagus, spinach, peas, in fact, most green vegetables. Also, wine, beer, and spirits, and now I love them. How is that even possible? My nephew says it's because our taste buds are getting old, which in turn means we're getting old. Well, I'd rather have it that way if it means I can enjoy sipping a dram of whiskey from my Lush Life mug. Oh yes, that was a plug for my new Lush Life merchandise. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time by the best in the industry. Back to the merch. Mugs, t-shirts, dresses, bags, even duvet covers, everything you need to live a lush life. All spanking new and ready for you to find on redbubble.com or alushlifemanual.com. By purchasing an item, you are helping me bring you this podcast every week. Plug over and back to our show. We were talking about things we hated as children. And now a door, like a scotch and soda. Our guest today, Jason Clark, never wanted to be in the drinks industry. His parents owned a bar, and when he was up and ready to play, they were still in bed. He even had to make them coffee to rouse them in the morning. Strange how things turn around, and now not only is he in the bar industry, but he has recently been appointed brand ambassador for Talisker Whiskey. This is after an incredible journey already of winning competitions and even owning his own bar. All from a guy who had planned to spend his whole life outdoors. Stick around after the cocktail of the week. Jason will describe what's on tap for Talisker's Race to Sky competition. You grew up in a place that I can't even pronounce. Taronga. Taronga. Yeah. And you went to a school that, forget it. I, how yeah. do you pronounce that? Uh, Otomotai College. And where is that exactly? So it's, um, it's a reasonable sized city in the north of island of New Zealand, uh, two hours southeast of Auckland. And yeah. um, what, you know, are your parents from there? How did you get there? Um, my father's English and my mother's Kiwi. Um, they actually met over here in the UK. Um, and um, we went back to New Zealand. And, um, yeah, that was my mum's hometown, basically, Taronga. I love it. Yeah. And um, so so what led you into um, the hospitality industry? Well, yeah, it's a funny story. I guess um, my – actually, my father's a musician, so he's always been in – he's in a rock band, um, and he's always been part of the night scene, I guess. I used to go to gigs when I was young, um, and my mum – eventually got into the into the bar industry and they opened a bar together when I was probably five years old. Um, so you were practically born into it? In a way, I I didn't have a, a heavy involvement, but I would run around, I was seeing them launch the bar and I was, yeah, a, a little bit involved. And then, um, but I never, I didn't enjoy it. And I used to hate the fact that my parents would always be sleeping in, particularly on the weekends. Young kid, you want to get up and, you know, go adventuring and do stuff they would always be sleeping in and they'd need me to make two or three coffees in the morning just to get them out of bed by lunchtime because they were working such late hours and and whatnot so I I actually swore I'd never work in the bar industry and then um, famous last words yeah exactly (laughs) just one thing led to another I finished school and wasn't particularly sure what I wanted to do I didn't want to do an office job um 
I was started doing some construction, and then I picked up a, a bar job uh, part time on the side. Uh, was actually I was a glassy. I was only seventeen, and, and the drinking age was twenty in New Zealand at the time. So I was quite excited to be in in the sort of the nightlife scene. Did you think, okay, this is what may have attracted my parents to this? Not really. No, I didn't. I didn't. Uh, it was just a stopgap, really. Um, I, I sort of I did enjoy that I was part of the nightlife as a as a young kid, but I you know felt I was moving on to other things. Um, and at which point, by the time I was twenty, I actually moved over here to the UK um, just to explore, to look around, to meet family that were over here, uh, and go travelling. I was looking for work, and I got really stuck, couldn't find much, and then um, I got a job with TGI Fridays. The famous TGI famous Fridays. Famous TGIs, and um, the timing was, I was really lucky. They were incredibly short-staffed and, and really struggling, this particular outlet, so they were all about training, so they would bring in their top uh, bartenders from around the country to this outlet just to extensively train bartenders. Which one was it? It was uh, Guildford and Surrey. Yeah. So all the way down Surrey, we're not talking central London. No, no, in Surrey, yeah. Well, that's where my uncle and auntie were at the time, so uh-huh. I stayed with them. It sort of got me on my feet. Um, I got stuck into the training. The training was amazing. Uh, for the first three months, I wasn't allowed to pour a drink. I was I was learning everything from the sensitivity of fruit, how to manage um, the cellar. Um, we had to do our top 100 cocktails. You had to be able to um, do an exam and... and and list off 100 cocktails. Um, you know, we had to know five things about every bottle on the back bar. It was really, really good training. And, and it was that was great. But the main thing was I got into the hospitality side and um, entertaining, um, spinning bottles, um, dressing up, having fun with guests and, and being a, a showman is what really sort of got me hooked, as well as the, the creativity of the cocktails. Um, they say that the TGIF training is was then the best in the world. I mean, a lot of the great, including you, great bartenders have come out of that. Yeah. It's... And not to be embarrassed by it at all. There's not, you know, it, it was rigorous and, you know, no, that's, that's really well respected. Yeah, I, I wouldn't, um, probably wouldn't catch me dead drinking in one these days, um, sadly. But um, at the time, the training was, was phenomenal and it was just so extensive. And yeah, you're right, so many incredible bartenders and, and now bar owners and, and bars have, have sprung up from that and still use a lot of that training sort of template today. Now, now there's a random video of you um, doing flair online. Mm. And were you starting to do that there? Yeah, I got, um, I guess, as part of the culture there, while you're pushing to um, make good drinks and entertain, we were taught how to entertain by the way you pour. And that can be, you know, juggling three bottles to just smooth, flowing, free-pouring sort of style bartending. And I really liked the, the challenge of that. And so, you know, that's what myself and my friends would do in our spare time. Instead of watching TV or playing video games, we were smashing bottles, basically, practicing, learning how to how to flare. By the way, I love that you're actually making the arm movements while we talk here, but <laughs> <laughs> I can totally visual, visualize it. I was just holding myself back. Right, I yeah. sort of want to get into it even more. It just, just comes natural when you, when you talk about it. It's... Now, in your mind, were you ever thinking, ooh, cocktail, the movie? Because a um, lot of people I've interviewed are like, oh, well, I saw cocktail, I had to be a bartender. Not really. I think cocktail came up... Um, 
some stage and, and I've you know definitely watched it all the way through a few times but it was never the main motivation no. but he was cool he was um, Tom was actually trained to, to, to do the move by a TGI bartender so were you hooked then were, you know after the three months I think so yeah I think that was sort of the point I, I uh, went away traveling at one point um, came back and you know bar work was was what came up and I found that I got a lot of respect coming from TGIs and and I had a really good platform or foundation which to you know build my skills and yeah, from there on, I was I was pretty well hooked in the industry. So after the three months there, how long did you stay? Um, I think I was I was only did TGIs for eight months in total um, before I went. You know, I was young and I was here to travel and explore. So I, me and my mates went off to Amsterdam and Ibiza and and you know touring around as you do. Um, and then I came back to the UK and got into more bar work from there. Mm-hmm. Did you have any direction yet of where you thought this career could lead you, or it's just you were young and all yeah. fun? No, I was just, just enjoying it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so after two years in the UK, I was, I was sort of ready to go home. Uh, I went back to New Zealand, and I, I went, into, went to study, actually, um, outdoor recreation, Sounds a lot of fun, but and it is. But it was um, basically learning how to be a guide for um, rock climbing, mountaineering, bush navigation, um, kayaking, and so I went and studied that for a couple of years. But while I was doing that, I was working part time in a bar and um, in a really cool place in New Zealand, and it just accelerated all my passion and the, the outdoors sort of became more of a hobby. And I started to focus on on the bar trade and wanted to. I wanted to own my own bar and work towards that. Had you done any of the outdoor stuff here in the UK? Not in the UK, but growing up as a kid in New Zealand, uh-huh. it's you do a, a lot of that stuff. So yeah, I'm sure you must have really wanted, you know, the UK, London. It, it's not, it's not an outdoorsy city. When you think of New Zealand, or when I think of New Zealand, you know, it's pure outdoors. I yeah. can see how that could be super attractive, but it doesn't really go well with a nighttime job that has you drinking or making drinks till four o'clock in the morning. No. I mean, when did you decide what choice to make and was it tough? Yeah, it was really tough. And, and you're right. The, the nightlife started to impede on, you know, um, the ability to, to do all those outdoor activities. And so, uh, at least to do them well. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And just, but I, I mean, at the time I was still very young and, and really energetic and I, I pushed myself and I had others around me in a similar situation. So um, we just really dug deep and got stuck into it. Um, actually, one of the uh, guides on my course died oh, during the year and he was the sort of leader of the course. And so the course sort of fell apart mm. and I didn't get to finish my qualification. So that's when I just started working full time in the bar and really focused on that. And, and the outdoors became a side mm-hmm. thing. When did you, or, you know, were you always thinking when you made that choice, all right, this is a career, this is going to be more than bartending, I can learn this skill that can take me further? I mean, I think it was, it was while I was there working that job, particularly the, the bar, I was in a really cool cocktail bar that sort of turned into a nightclub. It was, and the, the owner was fairly young. He was about 38, 40. And um, I just thought, this guy's living the dream he's got it made he's got this wicked bar in this incredible place 
he's not having to do much work particularly, but he's you know got just got an incredible lifestyle. And I thought, well, there's no reason I, I shouldn't or, or couldn't work towards that. So that's what got me hooked on it. So I became went on a mission. Right, I'm going to go away. I'm going to earn more money, save money, build a business plan, and come back and open my own bar. Mm-hmm. How long did that take you? That took me. That that was seven. So that took three years. Yeah, about three years, two and a half, three years, and I just I didn't save anywhere near as much as I should have, um, but I really worked on a business plan and I started to I learned I, I started to study how do you make a business plan, what do you need, and mm-hmm. I just started over time built this document that was a real structure. Um, I during that time I I went and lived and worked in Australia. I was back over in the UK again and then came back to New Zealand and started looking for a site. And I wanted it to, um, in a small town called Wanaka, which is in the mountains of New Zealand. They call it sort of, almost sort of Aspen of New Zealand. Um, And there was just no location that was suitable. And then I went over to the next town, which is a little bit bigger, um, Queenstown, beautiful ski resort um, town. And um, managed to find an old bar that was about to close down. it was yeah, about to crumble and I managed to swoop in and I just sort of found an investor mm-hmm. and we, we got the bar for a steal. We put a little bit of money into it and away we went. Did you know what kind of bar it was going to be? Um, I had to, with the business plan, I had a bit of a, I had a, you know, my dream bar down on paper and I had to adapt that for the situation. And what was the dream bar? Dream Bar was very much sort of speakeasy, cocktail speakeasy, um, and it was just, it was a tough market at the time I came in. There was a real price war, and um, I had to be sort of adapted into more of a party bar. We started with the cocktails early, but it would sort of transform into more of a late-night party bar. Because when you said ski resort, obviously I'm thinking, you know... Uh hot chocolate with creme de menthe or beer and you know that is a party kind of bar yeah the ski thing this was um, a sort of a downstairs underground bunker type uh-huh. space um, and yeah the crowd that was sort of particularly drinking at the time there was was a young market a young party crowd so I actually turned it into um, a tiki bar so it was, it was the first tiki bar in New Zealand, um, and it was you know, a little bit of, I guess, a contrast to the scenery being a, a ski town that we've got this underground, you know, <laughs> sunshine tropical bar, um, and it was yeah, it was really fun. I had that for uh, just under four years before I sold it. So after three years of planning, it, it, did you feel that you were fulfilled? This was you know you got out of it what you thought you were going to. Um, the challenge of opening a new bar was, was amazing. Going through all that process was extremely tough, um, but it was really rewarding. Um, got it up and running. I had some difficulties. There were license changes with the council, and you know I had some of the best years of my life. Um, I didn't make my millions from it, and um, I definitely made a lot of mistakes and, and learned a lot from it. So I didn't. I don't think I achieved the fulfilment I had hoped to. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Um, I didn't get in a position like my old boss where I could... That was going to be my next question. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was working 80 plus hours a week, uh-huh. you know, um, being the face of a small venue, I was just, I, I had to be there. And uh-huh. So um, we managed to sell it and just, to, you know, just above break even. And um, I was ready for a change then. So 
I, I assume at the same time you were honing your skills in bartending. Had you yet um, entered any competitions? Not really. I had um, I'd entered a flair competition, a um, couple of flair competitions, um, one of which was the video that you saw. Oh, yeah. um, that was in Australia, actually. And, and then I entered a couple of... I Actually, I started to enter a couple of competitions, mm-hmm. but I was so... It was hard to really commit yourself when you're running a bar and managing a bar. I was so head down in the business. It was hard to really commit. But I did a few little things. Well, actually, I entered um, the 42 Below Cocktail World Cup, yeah. which is uh, an incredible competition. It's almost the pioneer of competitions today, like World Class and Bacardi Legacy. Um, and that was how it was held in Queenstown. And they bring bartenders from all around the world in teams. And you compete as a team. Um with challenges like shaking a cocktail while you're bungee jumping, um, <laughs> making a Cosmo while you're on a jet boat going down a river. Well, your outdoor um, training must yeah, have come with that. Exactly. <laughs> so that was a really exciting time, and I was I was involved in that, but never um, didn't have huge success until I sold the bar and moved on, and I, I took a role as just a, a beverage manager in a bar in Wellington in New Zealand, and that's where I really focused back on the drinks rather than having to manage the business. And that, that's mm-hmm. where I really then started to have success with competitions. Mm-hmm. And did you start to, I, mean, I don't know if you had done this before, um, see that the world was changing with cocktails and this was kind of the next step to yeah. enter more competitions and really refine those? Yeah, I think those 42 uh, Below was almost one of the um, catalysts for that. Um, they were bringing you know these bartenders from around the world and these teams, I'm giving them, uh, media exposure. A good example was um, the organizer Jacob Bryars. He he had stumbled across uh, Wayno Sun. So he's a famous Japanese bartender, famous for carving the ice diamond. Um, he'd stumbled across him in Tokyo, brought him out to New Zealand and put him on show to all some of the top bartenders that were that were sort of traveled from around the world. And um, that shook his Japanese bartending and, and it was this sort of time that it was all booming. So, yeah, I was quite happy just to put my head down and focus on the craft of, of making great cocktails and the entertainment hospitality side without having to, you know, pay the wages and do the tax and, and all the, the technical admin that I was doing previously. It must have been kind of a relief. It was. It was a little bit... I didn't have my tail between my legs, but it was a little bit weird taking a step back from ownership and going just back into the bar. But I guess... You know, I saw the positive in it that I could focus on those elements. Um, I entered a number of competitions and started to win, you know, or place in the top three in New Zealand sort of every time. And, and I started to then get international travel, which was amazing. And back to the travel that you loved yeah. to do when you were long. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So when did you think about entering or coming across the Diageo world um, class? That came a bit later. Um, so I I won um, an IBA competition and I went to Poland and I placed third in the world. I won a gold medal for my category, placed third in the world in IBA, which is what was the category? Classic cocktails. Uh-huh. And I, I sorry, my, so I was in the classic section, but I was in the after dinner category. So I had to do a digestive, and um, that was an amazing experience. IBA is not my um, preferred style. It is very old school and uh, tacky in a way, I guess. Um, But it was an amazing experience. And then I came back and I won bowls around the world for Australasia. Went to Amsterdam. 
um, which was a life-changing experience. That the, the friendships I made and the travel and, and that experience was amazing. I won Appleton Estate. I went to Jamaica, which was amazing. You know, from New Zealand. So you you're like winning everything now. Yeah. You know, it's just there's one after the other. Yeah. Um, I mean, was your eye on? Oh, okay. The next one could be the Diageo World Class. Yeah. I mean, were you still at that same bar while you were winning all those, or were you doing something else? I was all still at the same bar, uh-huh. um, and then. My wife and I looked to move. Um, she had a, a career opportunity in Auckland. So we moved and I couldn't find the right bar I wanted to be in. So I actually took a role as, a, as a, an ambassador for a syrup company, um, a New Zealand syrup company, using um, natural sort of purees and all real real fruit. And that was um, a good experience. I learned about, um, I guess, the brand side and, and being a brand ambassador, designing drinks for them and whatnot. But... My heart wasn't hundred percent in it because it wasn't. It was. You know, I'd rather be working for a spirit brand than, than syrups, I guess. Um, but I did a lot of travel with that. Uh, they took me to Korea, Singapore, um, and I just developed more skills as in presenting and, and, and designing drinks for them. And then I came back, and World Class had just launched in New Zealand for the first time, and I was quite lucky because I had uh, just found a new bar project. So I, I jumped in on the new bar project and entered world class and yeah, managed to, to win that. Um, so I was the first to win, represent New Zealand. This was in 2013. And um, I didn't really actually know much about world class other than Tim Phillips from Australia had won the year before. Um, so I didn't really know what I was in for and won the title. Um, the the trip that year was to um, the Mediterranean, so it was held on a on a cruise ship. Uh, you flew into Nice, um, and the the cruise ship then went Nice, Monaco, Saint Tropez, Ibiza, Barcelona. So amazing journey. And while you're on that, how many people were on the boat with you? There was uh, another. There was forty six bartenders representing their countries. There were another 200 people on the boat, film crews and, uh, and whatnot. A pretty um, small group, really. Yeah. You know, about 200, 250. Yeah. Um, it was, you know... It's amazing humming. no one fell off the boat. There were, no one fell off, but there were certainly some wild <laughs> stories from it. Uh, a lot of people say that was the best. It was class. a very concentrated space. Yeah, you know? yeah exactly. And, uh, you can't run away from anyone else. No. Yeah. And, but I... I sort of missed out on a lot of the, the fun of that. I was so focused on the competition, mm-hmm. and it's it's not a regret, but um, I guess it's what, what helped me do so well there. I just really shut everything off and just focused on the drinks and, and tried to be really professional. And I so I missed all the parties and, and the wild side, um, but I got the result in the end. So well, uh, I finished fourth overall. Um, Coming from New Zealand, first time, I was sort of hoping top 20 if I was lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, so to place fourth was was amazing. I won a challenge. I was top three in, in multiple challenges. Um, you know, I was with Jeff Bell, who's probably the favourite. Um, Gareth Evans from the UK. Um, there were some some incredible bartenders that year. So I was I was lucky, but um, yeah, I guess it paid off. No, you weren't lucky. It was talent. Yeah. <laughs> so... So what, after that, I mean, you're on such a high. Where do you go from there? Do you go back to New Zealand or? Yeah, well, I was I was buzzing. It was a bit of a shame. I was so head down, focused on the 
on the competition, I didn't um, get any spotlight from the camera. I sort of avoided interviews and things, so I didn't. There was a real a TV mm. show came out, and I didn't really get any mm. any um, publicity from that, sadly. Um, but you know, it's, it worked out with the result. So I went back to New Zealand. Actually, the bar that I was looking to open with these guys, they flew me um, home via New York so that I could go and do some research. Um, I did about 10 days there exploring New York, getting concepts and ideas to, to come back to, to launch this new bar. So I came back, put my energy into that. We launched a, this bar called Bedford Soda and Liquor. Which is a New York theme, right? It is, yeah. yeah. It's, it's themed off um, Bedford Avenue in Williamsburg. Um, and it's a very, what call it a, a neighborhood, New York neighborhood bar. And um, it's really cool space. It's still absolutely humming today. Um yeah, we kicked off with a bang, and it, it was a—it's been a huge success. Um, and I was was loving it, having a blast. We had a, I built a really strong team. The drinks menu was, I guess, quite innovative for the time. Um, we had lots of cool, crazy stuff, but we also really stripped back and made a lot of simple things um, that were a little bit cheaper and really approachable for everyday consumers. Um, they would walk in buy this cheap drink and, and be really wowed by it so they would then start to explore and, and get into the, the deeper quirkier fun things in the menu um, so that was I was only I thought I, I thought that was me I'd be there for for a decade or more but um, ended up only being about 18 months before the next opportunity so you still didn't get to the point where you could like your old boss yeah. where he was relaxed yeah. No, no, I didn't get there. Not yet, not yet. But I was, um, I, I loved every minute of being there. And I was, I really enjoyed I just went back recently mm-hmm. um, and uh, did a bit of a tour and it was, it's a great little culture and a great hub that. Because 18 months there. is a short time. Yeah. Especially if you've put everything into it. Yeah, it just, just so, flew by and I was, as I say, just the next opportunity was too good to turn down, so. And which one is that? So that was, um, well, actually, the, after World Class, the next year, um, 2014 I was asked to compete again by the New Zealand Diageo team and I didn't want to you know I'd already you know hit that height and I was focused on the bar and they sort of pushed me and pushed me and said all right I'll do it so I entered and managed to win again um, which was amazing but I put it all on the line so, but, so it was great to win you're probably like the Serena Williams, where they're like, "Oh God, it's him again." Oh, no, I wouldn't go that far, but it was yeah, it was it was a lot harder, and I I only narrowly won, whereas the the, the year before, I think I'd I'd uh-huh. you know taken it quite comfortably, um, and um, travelled over to the UK, competed, and because I placed fourth the year before, there was really high expectation um, mm-hmm. that I could could win it. Um, both with myself and the media and Diageo and whatnot. So um, the, the film crews were, were keen to get involved and they were interviewing me all the time and they really wanted to sort of follow my story. And um, maybe that's where I tripped up because that first year I was so focused on the, the drinks, I didn't have that distraction. But anyway, I, I screwed up a couple of rounds. Um, I went over time, tried to do too much. Um, just a few silly mistakes, and um, I got knocked out. I didn't oh, no. didn't even make the top uh-huh. um, sixteen, um, and I was very upset. And I was actually here in London, and they knocked us out of the competition. The next sixteen were carrying on, um, and I was in the shard um, in Obelix, crying in the gin and tonic, drowning in your sorrows. Yeah, 
And um, this guy came and tapped me on the shoulder and said, oh, oh you're that New Zealand guy. Um, I love your your technique. I love, you know, love your work. I have my money on you to win. Um, have you ever thought about living in Dubai? Oh. And um, I said, no. And we got talking and, and drinking, as you do, and, and talked about all this, this opportunity. They had a, had a role there as a luxury brand ambassador in Dubai, um, working for Diageo along with a bunch of other brands. And um, got all excited, but then you know, the night finished. I didn't see him again for the rest of the trip. I went home, and it was probably about six weeks later. I was back in New Zealand. I started getting these these phone calls from an odd-looking number, and um, finally answered one, and it was um, the guys in Dubai wanting to interview me for this this role. So um, I was very happy in New Zealand with the, with the bar and focused on that, and didn't really want to, to do it but I thought oh, I'll go through the process it'll be a good experience and um, I got really far and then they said oh, we're going to fly you out for an interview and I sort of said to my wife well I'm not going to take it but I'm going to take a free trip you know a holiday and it was weird timing she was actually out in Abu Dhabi DJing at the time um, it's, Abu Dhabi's an hour away from yeah. Dubai she was doing a DJ job so I flew out there uh, did the interview and then stayed on for five days hung out with her and another friend and went to the beach and, and had a real blast and decided, screw it, let's let's do it. It's a, it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, potentially. Haven't got a mortgage or kids. Um, I'd never, you know, thought of living in the Middle East. But, um, yeah, I went home, had my notice in, and a month later was in Dubai. And how long were you there? Did uh, nearly four years in Dubai, three and a half. Um, it was quite... Awkward timing because I'd previously proposed and was due to be married in um, six months' time. So we moved out to Dubai, got settled, and then I had to go back to New Zealand and, and do all the wedding, um, which was which was amazing. And then came back to Dubai. You, you like to have a lot of things on your plate at once. Yeah, just so. Well, I guess working for the syrup company, you kind of had a handle on. Being a brand ambassador, yes. Uh huh. So no, it wasn't yes. such a you know a, a you know a sharp difference from what you were doing before. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. I was used to managing and mm-hmm. managing my time and doing presentations and and talking cocktails. So yeah, it all sort of I don't know it seemed to lead to that and and um, that was an amazing experience. The Dubai market was was and is humming. Um, the drink scene is is really exciting out there. There's a lot of money, so people are interested in buying. You know, expensive and delicious things. So, um, I yeah, I really got absorbed into it. Um, really enjoyed it. Part of that was um, so I was, I was working on the luxury portfolio. We had a huge portfolio: um, Diageo, William Grants, Beam Suntory, Remy Quantro, Cuervo. Um, but part of that was managing world class. So I I oh. um, had a I was under a guy for the first year the guy that tapped me on the shoulder um, and he sort of taught me everything he knew and then he moved on and I took over the program for the next three years and um, that was an amazing experience running running world class just because you're um, linking them with all these passionate bartenders whether they've got the opportunity to win or the ability to win or not they're growing they're learning they're developing themselves so was I, that for the whole UAE yes yeah so uh-huh. it's actually UAE Dubai and Abu Dhabi are the only cities uh-huh. really uh-huh. and then um, we actually did uh, Oman as well um, linked it in together so 
yeah, that was really cool. We had some some big budgets, and we we so we bring in lots of rock stars, and and we did some really cool events. It was it was a great experience. So you were already working with Talisker then. Yeah, and you knew the brand slightly. Um, I hadn't. Um, Talisker what isn't a, a really focused brand out there. I was actually doing a lot of work with uh, Glenn Fiddick and Monkey Shoulder under William Grants. Um, on the Diageo side, it was a lot with Kettle One, Tanqueray, uh, Zacapa, Bullet, um, but, but I'd only really touched on Talisker. I was very aware of the brand. I'd, I'd drunk it many times over the years and, and was a big fan, um, but yeah, it wasn't a priority there. Mm-hmm. So when did they come calling? Um, well, I guess three and a half years in Dubai, and we were ready to leave, my wife and I. Um, she was particularly over it, looking for a change. Um, so um, we started looking at, at options, and um, the obviously the seasons are very... Um, I was just going to say that. I bet you'd long to put on a sweater, or yes, both. <laughs> exactly. And with a new summer coming, I, I just oh. couldn't face doing another summer there. Um, it's so intense, the heat. Winter was amazing. We ended up, we, we had a house near the beach, so I was almost uh-huh. twice a day I would go go to the beach, um, swimming and running and whatnot. But um, just with the new the next summer coming, I, I That's why everyone comes here. When yeah. you see so many people from there here. Yeah, well, the, during the, the, the summer. The, the Brits that are in Dubai is, is insane. Uh-huh. They, they, they make an amazing lifestyle out there. Um, but yeah, I just missed... Um, the cold and also um, the, the amount of thing. I like come in here to having an office in Soho was amazing. Just to go out and get my lunch is such an amazing experience. Let alone East London, and um, so with just the vibrancy of, of London sort of really attracted us. Oh, so you weren't going to go back to New Zealand? Um, well, my wife wanted to pursue her career, and mm-hmm. the, the best place for her to do that is here. So, um, and for me, I felt you know I, I could. I could definitely find something strong and, and do well here. And it's also London's such an attraction career-wise for me. It's the biggest challenge, really. It's, it's London or New York. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I had an amazing offer in New York um, and couldn't take it in the end because we couldn't get the right visa situation going. Um, so London was was it. We, we put our focus on here. Um, I put word out that I was looking for something and, um, yeah, got a, got a phone call from... From someone at Diageo. Hmm. Hmm. And so, what were your first thoughts when you thought, oh, okay, only whiskey, only one brand? Well, as should... opposed to tons of brands that you were dealing with before. Yeah, well, that was, that was um, pros and cons with that. Um, I loved working with a massive portfolio because I could be chopping and changing. One minute I'm, you know, doing uh, cognac tasting with, a, with, with Remy XO, and the next I'm doing, you know, Hendrix or Tanqueray. Or... So that was really exciting but it was really hard to just focus and and get your teeth stuck into to something so um the opportunity to work on one brand was was actually really exciting that i can try and make a big difference and, and put my focus on that and have you been up there i've been lucky enough to visit three times now uh-huh. it's yeah it's incredible and um so you also now um you oversee their competition yeah. Right. Yep. So. Um, so you're back to brand ambassador, brand ambassadoring. I think that's a verb. Um, and also, you know, from 
doing a whole Diageo competition to do a smaller one. Yeah, that was um, one of the attractions as well. So I was ner- I was a bit nervous coming onto onto one brand, but um, Talisker was really exciting because it's such an established brand, but in a subtle way. I mean, you'll probably find it in nine out of ten bars anywhere in the world, um, but generally as you know, a, a, a sipping you know, dramming whiskey that you would have neat, um, you know, or a dash of water, maybe an ice cube. And the opportunity for me was to um, educate and inspire people that there's so much more that can be done with it. Um, it's got such a, an interesting flavor palette that you can mix it in so many different ways. And, and Race to Sky, which is the competition, is a great platform for educating bartenders who are then sharing that with consumers that... Um, you know, you can get really creative and, and appreciate whiskey in so many different ways than, than just the traditional ways. Why don't you tell me what you think if someone drinks it neat that they should experience? Cool. So, um, Talisker is a, um, a medium peated scotch. So, often when we think of Scotland, we, we often think of um, Speyside, Highlands, Isla. Um, Talisker's a little bit unique. It's from the islands, so the Isle of Skye. Um, and I really feel it's the bridge between Speyside and Isla. So Isla is your big, heavily peated, you know, smoky bonfire whiskies uh, like Kalila, um, Lagavulin. And then Speyside is more your fruit-driven whiskies. Um, and the, the rich grain is really coming through. Talisker is medium peated, so it sits in the middle. Um, so there's a layer of smoke amongst other flavors rather than, you know, a bonfire or, or no smoke. Um, Talisker, the distillery is, is set right on the edge um, of, a, of a lock, so right by the sea. And um, the sky is a very rugged and remote location, and it gets battered by the elements, so the wind, the rain. Um, and that character really comes through in Talisker, and that's something that people tend to really appreciate with the brand is you almost get a, a sense of place, um, a sense of the elements, the terroir, um, of the Isle of Skye when you drink Talisker. So on first sip, um, you're going to get a little bit of sweetness, and that then goes into um, this, this chili pepper, the spice, this little bit of heat, and then that drops off, and you start to get a little bit more nautical sort of maritime flavors. It's almost like a, a subtle, um, salty seaweed, sort of sea on the rocks type character. Um, and that then goes into this, this sweet smoke, this rolling smoke, um, it's uh, its not delicate, but it's not extreme. Um, it just gives you this complex sort of layer in between those other flavors of smoke. Um, you've got a little bit of fruit, a little bit of honey, a little bit of toffee, sort of um, depending on the variant. Um, we've got quite a broad range, so each of them it has this sort of same core DNA of, of Talisker 10, but then they all have their own little... Um, personalities that, that run off that. So the Talisker Storm, for example, is a little bit more um, rich, round, toffee notes to it. Um, Talisker Sky is nice and light and bright, um, quite um, crisp. Um, then you've got the Distillers Edition, which is finished in um, sherry casks. So you get this lovely um, sort of sherried Christmas cake sort of fruited element to it. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a real selection, but they're all based on that that nautical character with a little bit of chili spice and that layer of smoke. So that, you know, delicious to drink on its own. 
um, with a touch of water can really open it up. It can soften that chili and almost open up that salty maritime character. Um, but also amazing in cocktails. So um, one of my favorites is, is a simple whiskey sour um, using talisker um, and honey instead of sugar. Lemon juice, egg white, you know, if you prefer that, that texture. Um, and a little... Um, um, dill or a, a lovely herbal note on top can work really well. Samphire works really well. Um, but it works really well in, in old fashions. Um, and a drink we've, we've designed specifically for this winter is the Talisker Campfire Hot Chocolate. So Talisker works really well with chocolate. So what we did is we, we worked out a recipe of making a delicious hot chocolate and then just adding in Talisker to find the right balance where you subtly get this layer of of, of whiskey and, and smoke coming through, and it gives you this this, this smoky, toffee, sort of um, decadent hot chocolate. That I'm going to have to try. So should we go to the bar? Let's go to the bar and, and try a Tasca Campfire hot chocolate. Oh, I can't wait. Whiskey is not only one of Jason's passions, but he also loves coffee, which is funny, as he didn't have a great relationship with it when he was young. As we know... There is that fine line between hate and love. Now, I know you wrote a book, Art and Craft of Coffee Cocktails. Now, you said that you made, co- you made coffee for your parents, <laughs> you know, to try and get them up when yeah. you were young. Um, did you always have a love of coffee from that time? or? Well, it's another um, classic <laughs> situation where I hated coffee because of that, that fact there, I guess. Um, you should know anything that you hated when you were young, you were going to end up doing as you got older. I, I wonder what's next. Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't, because they relied on coffee, I swore that I wouldn't. Um, but then later on in, in my hospitality years, um, I started to build an appreciation for coffee. And coffee is a huge part of New Zealand culture. Um, we sort of argue with Australia on who invented the flat white um, and um, our date definitely precedes theirs, but that's another Don't story. Don't tell Starbucks that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I always had a love for coffee, particularly the, the craft and the, the attention to detail to making a great coffee. Anyone can make, make coffee, um, but making a, a delicious cup, well-balanced, both the extraction and the milk, and the milk side, um, it takes a real lot of love and care. And so I... I start to rely on coffee, working in the industry late nights. Um, so I'm often trying to make myself or my team great coffees. I love training the team how to make great coffee. Um, and then over years, started experimenting with coffee cocktails. You know, you sort of start with the espresso martini, Irish coffees. Um, but then in recent years, I started to get a lot more creative and realized, wow, there's so much more um, opportunity and scope to get creative with coffee cocktails. First of all, caring about the coffee and making great coffee, and then looking at the flavors of that coffee and how can we manipulate that or use that in different ways. So the book is, um, I look into the history of coffee, um, you know, where it all started, um, how it's produced, and how to make great coffee, um, how to even you know, select good coffee to, to take home to, and then how to brew great, great coffee and then how to apply that to cocktails. Um, I've got over 75 recipes um, which showcase everything from the classic simple cocktails such as the espresso martini right through um, to, to modern 
create creations that are you know, using molecular techniques and whatnot. So I wanted it to be approachable for those at home, um, just dabbling in the topic right through to you know experts wanting to push boundaries and make really creative drinks. Do you have a favorite one of those recipes? Um, all really different. They're so particularly often seasonal or designed for different moments. Um, you know, the hot drinks are perfect here in, in, in London during winter. Um, yeah, I don't, it's about, I, I've got drinks that I love, but I guess the most excitement I get from drinks is making delicious drinks that my guests or, or friends or family are going to love. I love um, making something and placing it down in front of them and, and getting a smile on their face. You know, that's what almost started my passion within this industry was to, you know, make other people happy. And that's what cocktails are, are all about. So each one has their time, place, moment, you know, different different person that it's sort of suited to, I guess. I love that's the best way to not answer a question I've ever heard. Very <laughs> <laughs> great. Thanks so much to Jason for being on the show. It's still cold enough to warm yourself up with our cocktail of the week. And don't forget the marshmallow as it adds that perfect campfire touch. Do y'all know what a s'more is? Usually, it's a graham cracker with a just-toasted marshmallow on top and a few pieces of Hershey's chocolate melting from the heat on top of that just-toasted marshmallow and then all topped with a second graham cracker. You Brits can substitute a digestive for graham cracker and Galaxy for Hershey's. I find Cadbury slightly too oily for me, but it's up to you to find the perfect recipe. If you can't be bothered to do all that, or you want it a bit stronger and in liquid form, then our Cocktail of the Week is perfect for you. It's the Talisker Campfire Hot Chocolate. It is so yummy. You'll need 50 mLs of Talisker 10-year-old or Storm, 50 mLs of hot water, 60 grams of dark chocolate, 150 mLs of milk, it can be dairy or oat milk, one tablespoon of dark chocolate powder, 10 mLs of golden syrup, and a large marshmallow and some cinnamon or allspice. It's easiest in a milk steaming jug, but if you don't have one, do it all in a pot. Add the chocolate, hot water, and stir it. Then add the other ingredients and steam to heat it or just heat it up over a slow flame. Add in the milk and either froth or just stir. Serve it in a mug and garnish with that large marshmallow on a stick, toasted over a flame, and then dust the whole thing with cinnamon or allspice. As you know, you'll find this recipe and all the cocktails of the week on alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find all the ingredients in our shop. Fancy competing in the Race to Sky Challenge this year? Well, Jason gives us a teaser on what to expect. So this year's Race to Sky program, um, we're going to have a few changes to previous. Um, I'm going to be going around the country training bartenders on the fundamentals of, of the brand about um, where it's from, how it's made, the amazing history behind it. But the new element this year is we've got a bit of a new theme, which is called Wild Spirit. And that's looking at 
sort of the wild, rugged nature of, of the location of the distillery. Um, so we're going to be training bartenders um, how to link Talisker into drinks using um, homegrown ingredients, uh, foraged ingredients, um, sort of heirloom ingredients, quite rare sort of. It's all about this wild, rugged sort of element. So you might be using foraged pine needles in a, in a syrup or um, seaweed or but we want to bring this sort of wild outdoor element into drinks and I'm going to be showcasing techniques um, examples um, and really encouraging bartenders to think outside of the box when it comes to you know where you supply where you source your ingredients from um, so I think it's going to be quite a, a an exciting topic for bartenders um, it's, it's definitely on the cusp of a new new trend, um, looking at more holistic sources for your ingredients. So yeah, that, that should be quite fun. So gear up for that. Next time on Lush Life, we'll be in the North again, but it's North London this time with Sacred Gin's Ian Hart and Hilary Whitney. They began making gin years ago from a still that Ian built with his own two hands and has been perfecting all these years. They're here to tell us how it all came about. Remember to check out redbubble.com for all your Lush Life merch. It really does help bring this podcast to you every week. And that's my pitch. Until next time, bottoms up. Thanks for listening to the Lush Life podcast. For more information and links to everything you've heard, plus a whole lot more, please visit alushlifemanual.com. Always remember the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Okay, I said that last part. The music is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. Lush Life is produced by Evo Terra. And I'm your drinking partner, Susan Schwartz. I'll see you at the bar.